team for leading us this morning, and I'm thankful that you all have gathered with us in this place to meet God. If you'd like to follow along during the scripture reading for the sermon today, it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, and we'll be reading together verses 15 through 20. Hear God's word. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the meditations, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. Amen. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have held a grudge? against somebody else. I'll raise mine for all of us, perhaps, because I have. How, how many of you says, well, I'm not making the first move. That's their responsibility. He needs to reach out to me. She's the guilty one. I'm not going to apologize. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe there's a relationship that you'd like to repair. Maybe you're dealing with some issues relationally and you'd like to see those better. And if that's the case, then you're in the right place today. Jesus did not want a break in the fellowship of the disciples. Jesus does not want a break or a breach in relationships with neighbor. And one day Jesus was teaching his disciples in Capernaum, and it was just them. And when he had their complete attention, he taught a lesson dealing with conflict. He sandwiched it right between two parables. Parables that taught of God's unrelenting love and mercy. Very interesting how he positioned this teaching. He had already led them to the region of Caesarea Philippi. His pending death was coming. He had set his face toward Jerusalem. And it was time for Jesus to teach his disciples that he was to die and that he was to rise. And we've already studied that in these past couple of weeks. And trying to help his disciples to see what Messiah was. Not a warrior, king, hero, military Messiah, but a suffering Messiah who would die for all people. Jesus knew, I believe, that in order for them to make it through the persecution and the hardship that was to come their way as they continued to proclaim his message, that they needed to be in unity and that there would be times when they might disagree with each other, and they needed to have some tools in their toolbox, if you will, 
to be able to navigate those times. He did not want a breach in their fellowship in their fellowship to get in the way of God's purposes in reaching all people for the gospel. The disciples could not tolerate a breach in their own fellowship. They needed to be able to deal with their differences in a healthy way. And these words of Jesus have served as a model for Christians through the centuries, a good healthy way for us to deal with our differences. Go directly to the person, one-on-one, try to work it out. If that doesn't work, take a second person or a third perhaps, a wise person, and try to work things through. And if that doesn't work, then go to a larger gathering. And there may be some matters that are so grievous that they need to go before the congregation, before the church. Jesus uses this word church. But if you read through the New Testament, you know that the church hadn't been formed yet. There's not a an organized church that we see happening in the book of Acts. And there aren't churches that were named Philippi and Corinth and Galatia and so forth. Jesus here was talking about the big C church, the global church, the organized church that would come, the organized church that the disciples would help to usher into the world. But why do the, why do the Bible translators use the word church? If you study the word that is in the Greek translated church here in this passage, it's ekklesia. Can you say that? Ekklesia. Ekklesia simply means called out ones or assembly or congregation. Here, I believe Jesus is giving a picture of the, the global church, not organized local churches yet. Some scholars believe perhaps that he was speaking prophetically about the churches that these disciples would be a part of as they carried out the great commission following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that makes clear sense makes good sense to me but the word that is used with his disciples here did not mean a specific location like a specific building or church it always meant gathering or assembly and they being from Jewish backgrounds, would have been very familiar with the movement of the synagogue, the assembly, the local gathering of God's people. Why then would translators use church here? Very briefly, after the conversion of Constantine and the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire that became the official Roman religion, Assemblies and gatherings of Christians began, began, became known as basilicas. And a basilica was a Latin word that meant public building or an official meeting place. So church in these early centuries became less of a, an assembly or gathering and more of an institutional place or location. In later Germanic cultures influenced by Christianity, they would use the word Kerika, which became Kirche in modern German, and that is where we get the English word church. Though the reform, through the reformers 500 years ago to this year, the church became a movement once again and was not limited to the Roman institution or building, but the word church was so much a part of their tradition that the Bible translators couldn't get away from this word church, so it stuck And they translated this word with Jesus using with his disciples rather than assembly or gathering, translated it as church. So, at the end of the day, 
Jesus is teaching his disciples how to resolve their differences so that future followers of Jesus would have a model for themselves to use. And it's very applicable even today. We go to each other. Take two or more if needed. A few more needed after that. A larger body after that. Many different denominations and church, churches today have their own patterns, but it's modeled after this very basic way of resolving our conflicts. How it happens in various churches today isn't what is important, but that it happens is what is important. That Jesus' instructions help us not to allow things to fester between church members or between believers. Relationships are important, and I believe that's why Jesus gives this passage where he does and when he does. Given Jesus' words, we have a healthy way to resolve our differences in the church, one-on-one, then a couple of more, then a larger. Um, Today, many people do it the opposite. Things get spread around, murmuring and all of that, and then, well, we need to talk to this organizational body and deal with that, and then finally it might get to the person And they were so caught off guard that they were surprised and never knew anything was going on in the first place. So we we have to be careful and follow the biblical model and not do the opposite, which the world so frequently does. So today, a few helps, a few biblical steps towards reconciliation. Reconciliation is so important today. If we as Christians can't get it right, how do we expect the world to do it, right? Can we have an amen there? Maybe an amen. Yeah, good. So four steps and a reminder. I have to go quick today, but we have some, we have a, a lot in our service. But you have some notes, and if you'd like to write these down, uh, feel free to do that. the The first step is love does no harm to a neighbor. That's taken right from the passage Amanda read earlier in the cha- in the book of Romans thirteen ten. Love does no harm to a neighbor. This summer, our fa- my family and I went out west, as you remember me sharing a little bit ago, and one of the canyons we hiked in Arizona, right outside of Flagstaff, was called Walnut Canyon. And there are ancient cave dwellings there. The people about a thousand or a little more than a thousand years ago uh, made residences in the alcoves in the limestone rock in this particular canyon. And uh, you can see some of the photos on the slide, and they're amazing. And you can actually go into some of them and see it and walk in there. Look where they cooked and where they lived. Well, back in the 1800s when the railroads came through, a lot of people started to come to this area and they destroyed many of these cave dwellings, cliff dwellings. And so on one of the trails as I was walking, there was a sign that said, Do No Harm. I had already picked today's sermon title from Romans 13, Do No Harm. It's right in God's Word. When I saw that sign, I took a picture of it because it was a reminder that not only am I supposed to take care of God's creation and do a better job at that, but I need to take care of the relationships that I have. I need to make sure in my practice of my faith and my daily activities that I do no harm to others, that I seek to have healthy relationships with other people and that I follow the guidelines in the scripture. So we do no harm to others. The second thing briefly is to put scripture into action. 
apply it. Go to the person directly. Again, if your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they will refuse to listen, go to the church. Remember, there's that word again. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, the assembly, the gathered people, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I don't know about you, but I had a real problem with this last part of verse 17. Does that mean we're just supposed to throw them out? Does that mean we're supposed to just not care about them anymore? And I started digging a little bit, and do you remember what Jesus was called by the religious leaders? A friend of sinners? He even eats with who? Tax collectors. Hmm. His disciple Matthew was a tax collector. In Luke chapter 19, he came along, and who was trying to see Jesus and climbed up in a tree to see him? And who did Jesus call down and say, I'm going to your house today, we're going to have a meal together? Who was he? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was what? A tax collector. So this tells me that I'm supposed to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Did not Jesus love the pagan, love the sinner? Did Jesus not love the tax collector? Did Jesus not have a reputation for hanging out with the worst of the worst? Yes, he did. Now, I do understand there are times in churches, the church life, where there may be a situation that is so grievous that a person has to be asked to, to leave the assembly, to leave the membership. That happens. We hope that that never happens, but that happens in the big C church life. We've read about that. We've heard about that. But I believe that this passage as an ongoing practice is also telling me that I need to be mindful of the people around me and I need to love them no matter what. If our friend refuses to listen, we never refuse to love. That leads to the next step, put love into action. Not only put scripture here in action, but put love into action. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 writes to a church, he's trying to get back together, to be unified. And in verse 29, down in that passage, I've given you several verses, but in verse 29 he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only for what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't hurt the heart of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That speaks for itself. We must put love into action. And then I want to understand where people are coming from. I want to try to put myself in their shoes. That means to maintain an attitude of empathy. Sometimes people are upset with us or are, have a complaint or an issue, and maybe that's not the real issue. Maybe they're dealing with something, and we need to just take time and listen and explore that to see if there might be something else that's really hurting them. 
maintaining an attitude of empathy. Luke 6.31 is the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Basic. Basic Christian tenets. But we always hold on to that. Do no harm. Put scripture into action. Put love into action. Maintain an attitude of empathy. And then a help. Four steps and a help. The help is we have the Holy Spirit. We've got the Holy Spirit to help us with all of this. We don't have to do it on our own. Matthew 18, 19, and 20, the last part of our passage. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. God is with us. His Holy Spirit gives us the power and the ability and the wisdom to carry out these instructions that Jesus gives. And God loves it when his people are in unity. The word agree here in the passage, if you agree with each other, is the Greek word where we get symphony. Philip, I know you would love that word, symphoneo, symphony. We're together, we're collaborating, we're working together to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. If we can't get it right here, how do we expect the community out there to believe what we're preaching to them? It's important that God's people are unity. How beautiful it is when God's people dwell together in unity, says the psalmist, Psalm 133, verse 1. Recently, I had an opportunity to see this play out in my own family. And I asked my daughter if I could share this with you, and she said that it was just fine. She's 13. Isabel is 13. Last summer of 16, some of her friends were doing stuff on Instagram and texting and all of that. And you know how easily things can get misconstrued online, especially with social media. Well, some unkind things were said, and one of Isabella's longtime friends from where we used to live, since first grade, her friend uh, heard some other girls saying things that Isabella supposedly said. And anyway, at the end of the day, her friend since first grade, I'll call her Katie, blocked her have nothing to do with her. Isabella was devastated. And that went on for a long time. This summer, Isabella knew that she would see Katie at Girl Scout camp. One day in the car, Isabella said, Daddy, I don't like grudges. So I reached out to Katie, and she responded. Apparently, she had unblocked her. And the two of them were able to work things out Isabella took the first step one-on-one. They saw each other at Girl Scout camp, carpooled together, and Katie ended up inviting Isabella over for a sleepover at the end of Girl Scout camp. And now the two of them are friends like that nothing ever happened. And I'm so thankful that I was able to see that in my 13-year-old. And I don't know, maybe I've done something right as a parent after all. You know, we doubt ourselves, so... But I believe that she has picked up on things because she has been raised in the church, in the assembly, in the gathering place of God's people. Amen? Go and do likewise, we hope and pray. Let's pray. Thank you, O God, for the model that you have given us that tells us that relationships are important and that at the end of the day that you desire for us to love and to never give up and 
sometimes to take that first step even though it might be risky. We can't control what the other person does, but at least we have been faithful in trying to reconcile in our relationships. Father, we pray that you would help us to deal with the relationships that we have. Maybe there's a person or a family member or a member of the church here today who needs to take that first step of reconciliation and will follow the pattern you've given us here in the gospel. We ask you bless that and that your Holy Spirit will give power and help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.